Hi, and welcome to Government Transformed, a podcast all about digital transformation, produced by Global Government Forum with support from knowledge partner Visa. I'm your host, Siobhan Benita, and I'm here to take you on a journey into the future of government, where I speak to guest experts about what their organisations are doing to digitalise and the progress that bureaucracies can make, regardless of where they are on their path to digital transformation. Ready? Let's go. So, Kevin, we're back again for our next episode on government transform, so transformation and digital transformation in government. And in our first chat, we talked about what is digital transformation? What what really do you mean by transformation? And what might the benefits and opportunities of that transformation be? In this episode, I want to drill down a little bit from your personal experience of working in the UK government, really how... Do governments even begin that transformation journey? So before we start talking about the how, what was it like for you coming in to the UK government, having worked mainly, I think, in the private sector before then? Yeah, so just by way of background, I've spent all my life as a technologist. I started out in consulting with PwC, did a spell in investment banking with Goldman Sachs. And then my last role before coming to government was the global head of all things digital for Vodafone. Uh, and when I came to government, I was recruited as the director general for digital transformation for the Department of Work and Pensions, which is interesting because we hadn't done any transformation at that time, but at least they had the kind of ambition to do digital transformation. And the first thing I did was to change my title to Director General for Business Transformation because it's a mistake to assume it's the technology that drives the change. It's always the people. This picks up a bit on what we were saying in the first episode in that when you're talking about true transformation, technology is obviously a part of it when we're talking about digital transformation, but actually it's a lot about the people and the processes and the culture and getting that right. So uh, I'm sure we'll get into it later. And last time we used the shorthand form for transformation, PPT, People Process Technology. This time around, we're going to talk about the full seven lenses version. And as you say, we'll probably get into that as we go forward. So your first impression then of coming into government, was it that transformation was a bit of a buzzword, but people didn't really know what that meant? And did they have a vision even of what they wanted from digital transformation? Yeah, it was definitely a buzzword. Definitely clear, you know, from episode one of the podcast, the permanent secretaries didn't know what digital transformation was at that point. In fact, that was three years earlier than that point. So you can imagine where we were. And we really had no decent visions or strategies for government at that time, really, within the departments. There was an overarching GDS, Government Digital Service, Cabinet Office strategy, but most departments really hadn't embraced that, understood it, taking it on for themselves. So that was job one, really, to create a vision for the department. And did you do that? Did you create a successful vision? And is this something that other countries around the world, are they doing a similar thing? Do they all have visions for their digital transformation? Yeah, so um, specifically for DWP, we did create what was then called in 2013, the 2020 vision, which felt like a far enough 
amount of time away so it could be a vision but actually we got to it fairly quickly in truth and that was a picture which i know you and i have got in front of us and we'll probably have to put on the front of the podcast but but it kind of showed the layers of change that were required right from the very basic philosophy of how to run the department through to its implementation its change of organization and processes through to affecting the lives of citizens and that probably took us 18 months of hard work to get to really so we created a vision i think to your wider point around how do other governments fare in creating a vision for their own governments we spent as global government forum we spent the last two years speaking to approximately a third of all the countries in the world so that's over 60 countries around their vision their design and their implementation which we'll, again we'll get into later and i would say university there are some really good visions design and uh, plans saudi arabia and singapore are the two that really stand out but most are pretty samey they talk about creating digital identity they talk about creating data sharing they talk about joined up services what we referred to last time as life events they talk about better tools for civil servants but they're all pretty samey and in truth our major finding was the strategies aren't that differentiating you could almost copy somebody else's it's really your design and plan how you implement it that makes the difference between being successful in this transforming landscape to being you know unsuccessful and not being able to do so basically what you're saying is lots of places have a strategy but there's no point just having that strategy if it sits on a shelf somewhere. You also need a good plan to implement your strategy. Yeah, and, and indeed, I mean, we'll probably get into this now because the short form, people process technology, change your org structure, create new capability, change processes, add different technology flavours, has largely been succeeded by some work we did in the UK called the Seven Lenses of Transformation. And this was a joint initiative between two offices as that are part of cabinet office the government digital service and the major projects authority and you have to have to think why did we go to all this trouble to invent this methodology and the answer was we were pretty bad at managing the major projects we have on the books uh, the projects we had at the books at the time he says reading his notes 235 projects with a total cost of 678 billion and 726 billion of monetized benefits. And now that's lovely, but the important part is 95% of all our major projects failed to reach their original objectives and timeframes. So the reason why GDS and the MPA got together was to try and change that dynamic so that we successfully delivered a lot more of our programs than we have been doing previously. So these, when you talk about these programs, they weren't explicitly digital transformation programs. These were just major programs, change programs that government was involved in. Yeah. And 95% of those failed to meet their targets. So yeah. again, the technology is not the driving thing here. It's, it's understanding what's going on in these processes and why they're not working. Yes. And then the digital kind of comes into that. And makes it a bit more complicated. <laughs> so, you know, classic examples of our major programs, Crossrail, HS2, big infrastructure programs. And I would argue, and I've argued for years, and nobody's really ever argued back, I would argue that they're easier to do than the digital transformation programs because actually we do know how to build tunnels. We do know how to build railways, really. And once you start on those programs, you kind of know where you want to get to. 
in digital transformation programs like Universal Credit, it's about changing citizen behavior. And that behavior over the 10 years it takes you to implement the program changes as well. So at no point is your endpoint fixed. You're constantly re-navigating to try and end up with the right outcome based on the right endpoint, if that makes sense. So you said that you spoke to, as part of this digital leaders study, you've spoken to over 60 countries. That's a huge amount of Mm. content and information that you've got. What came out of that study in terms of some of the common mistakes that governments around the world are making? Let me do the UK context first, and then I'll expand that out to do the global context, if that's okay. So, you know, we recognise 95% of our major programmes don't meet their original objectives and timeframes. The four most common mistakes we make in the UK. One is all our major projects are normally less than five years long, the lifetime of the government. They won't be, but because of the politics involved, people try to squeeze them into five, and that's often not realistic. Two is we have a real deficit of transformational skills at the highest levels of civil service, so permanent secretaries and, and higher levels. And without those guys being involved, it just can't be delegated to people like me to do it on their behalf. And there's a great example we talk about later, again, on universal credit and the critical role of the permanent secretary in making some part of that happen because I couldn't do it. But that I guess we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Uh, The other thing we've already talked about, visions in government are generally quite poor. It's quite hard to have something that's a soundbite for a minister to get people excited about through to having enough detail to convince, you know, 55,000 people in your organisation that this is what it's going to look like. Finally, the other mistake we make in the UK is often the money comes kind of first and then we start and then we realise we haven't thought about all the things we need to think about, like capability, accountability, plans and designs. And we get started and already we get ourselves into trouble because we're spending money without necessarily having a proper plan behind it. So that, I guess, is UK. What we found globally for digital, we didn't so much look at transformation globally as digitization, which we know is the meat and potatoes of what we really do. And we found seven problems, ranging from things like uh, digital identity being the only technical one. The others were mainly around capability of senior civil servants that we talked about here internal engineering capability, obstacles within things like the funding, ways things are funded for tunnels and bridges, which we talked about rather than flexible programs like universal credit, and for things like ease of procurement. And so they're slightly different globally from the mistakes we make in transformation in in the UK. This podcast is sponsored by Visa. Visa helps governments around the world to transform their work and impact through digital solutions for accepting and making payments domestically or across borders. I do want to come back to some of your personal experiences, in particular some of the big transformation projects that you worked on and also want to touch on that skills issue because I think that's really interesting especially for our audience some of whom might be kind of skilled in digital technology some of whom might be more on the general policy side so I'm interested in how we get those two groups working more effectively together but you've mentioned a couple of times the seven lenses 
The seven lenses methodology that you said was developed by yourself in GDS working with some others, is that then a methodology that civil servants could pick up now and would that help them if they're involved in a transformation program? Yeah, that was exactly why we wrote it down. And it, and it was designed to be conversational rather than didactic in the sense that it made you think a little bit more about what you're doing in order to check your own homework, really, and make sure you didn't make some of the obvious mistakes that we made time and time again in reality. And it has been adopted by other governments like Canada and Australia. So it's still valid today. And, and the, the essence of it was... We said there are seven things, we call them lenses, but just perspectives on a program. Make sure you think about all seven. That was one of the big messages. And then individually, we talked about the vision and we tried to tell people what a good vision looked like as opposed to a not good vision. We tried to emphasize the design and plan because at some point you've got to map these 10-year programs out if you've got 55,000 people to retrain in your staff alone, you can't wing that. You've got to plan it. And you've kind of got to know which bits of it you do like this and are very automated, what we call in, in the trade low touch. And those bits of it which are very manual, which we call in trade high touch. And just to give you an example of this, if you book a flight, most of us want to book a flight online now, low touch. When you lose your luggage, High touch. You want Which someone happens to talk. a lot yeah, Exactly. Time, timely today. Uh, so vision, design and plan. And then we talked about transformational leadership. And again, I'll, I'll talk about my poem second, how helpful it was to me. And we'll also talk about another example where it didn't go right. And then we talked about collaboration and accountability. And I used to think this was a UK thing until I spoke to all these people across the world. In the UK... We tend to delude ourselves. We're very collaborative in the civil service. Everybody works nicely together. Turns out that isn't true. So if you get high kind of scores on collaboration and low scores on accountability, where accountability says who's doing what and how they're going to be held accountable, you know that's a bad sign. Now, it turns out the rest of the world is not so dissimilar. Now, there's a great quote in the Caribbean study we're currently doing from a gentleman who said that collaboration in his organisation is collaboration by mouth they don't actually do it they just talk about right. it but i just think that's a fantastic yeah. expression and then final lens is people we call it capability but it's always about people if you don't have people who can do it understand it you're never going to get it done so where can people find the seven lenses if they want to read a bit more about that is that on the government website they can just google that and it's on yeah. the website if you put in gov.uk seven lenses of transformation it comes straight up and how does it sit alongside project management tools does it replace them does it supersede them no so project management tools said to be rather formal you do it like this they're directive the seven lenses was always designed to be kind of conversational and, and the nice thing about it if you if you read it it will say things like if you find yourself talking about the kind of manufacture of a system instead of the problem we're trying to solve you know you've gone wrong and, and honestly, within technology, you see this all the time. People get passionate about a particular product. It's better than the other one. And they forget what they're trying to achieve in the first place. So it's got lots of don't fall into this trap. This is what good looks like. So really, you do all of this first before you would get into any of that detailed. Yeah. And you kind of have to run every lens in your own mind. Is there enough detail in this yeah. that everybody can understand it? Everybody yeah. would know how to implement it. 
Okay, great. So moving down now, I've got that sense of the seven lenses and I've got a sense of the general approach. I want to drill down a bit into your own personal experience. So can you tell me a bit about, I guess it's the major transformation project that you were involved in and you alluded to it in in episode one, universal credit. So how did the UK government move from having the vision to actually the successful implementation of this big transformation project? Yeah, so just to refresh our minds on universal credit, it's a welfare reform, it's the reform of unemployment. And there are lots of tenets to this, but one of the main tenets was to go from a largely manual retail environment, people going into job centres, labour markets, they call them in the US, on a fortnightly basis, to being a much more online experience. So the main tenant was moving from retail to online. And uh, I think I said this at the start, my job prior to joining government was with Vodafone. We had noticed in Vodafone that when we went from the retail environment to the online environment, the customer care changed considerably. It went from what I used to describe as nine to five to five to nine in the evenings and weekends, because people don't want to interact online with their retailer uh, when they're at work, simple as that. And I had numerous conversations with my permanent secretary, Robert Devereux, so Robert Devereux nowadays, and said, we need to be on this from the start because it's going to move from being a retail organisation, 9 to 5, to an, an online organisation, 5 to 9. And that's going to have a massive impact on our 55,000 staff who's sitting in our 721 job centres, I think it was at the time. And to be fair to Robert, he absolutely got the impact of this. And and this is where it becomes important that your leader leads rather than me. Because if I try to convince job centre staff that, well, it's been nice this nine to five, but it's over. You now have to come in from five to nine o'clock in the evening. That's going to be much harder, particularly for people with families. And um, you'll have to work a bit of the weekend. They would have never believed me. And actually, I do remember this. When I had some of these conversations with people and I said, this is what's going to happen. They said, well, we tried that in 1976, Kevin, and it didn't work then. It's like, well, you know, I'm an old fella, <laughs> but I can't remember 1976 yeah. so well. But Robert, who's a similar age to myself, could. And he'd say, well, it wasn't like that in 76 as it happened. It was, this is different because. But only Robert could convince the staff as their leader, someone who'd spent a lifetime in the business like they had. And not only was he their leader, but he had the authority to go to Treasury and renegotiate their terms and conditions on their behalf to say, we're asking an awful lot of these people to change from what they've got used to to something very different. We should compensate them in some way for that. And we can fund that increase in compensation because the business case will no doubt you know, generate the benefits that we want to. And, and it's, it sounds simple when you say it like that, but to put it in perspective, in the department, Friday is the day when the ministers are not in the building, so go back to their constituencies, and it's kind of a, a lower-key day, really. Every Friday, Robert used to get up at the crack of dawn, get the first train out of London, go to a job centre hundreds of miles away, sit with about three groups of 15 people over the course of the day, and explain and answer every question they had around why and how he was going to look after them all and make sure that you know, the job was still as good as it used to be. So in terms of that, obviously he was crucial to the success of this programme. And that goes back to your seven lenses and the importance of transformational leadership. 
But what you're saying is he didn't necessarily have the digital skills. That wasn't what you needed from Robert. You needed his ability to communicate the vision to his staff. And why do you think Robert was so successful at doing that? Did Was it because you'd explained to him the benefits of this? Like, how did that relationship between you and him work? Because I think a lot of people in other governments or a lot of our maybe our audience listening to this would would be frustrated maybe that their leaders don't get the benefits or they they're not prepared to go out and kind of bat for transformation in that way yeah i think there was an element of mine and robert's relationship in this for sure but i think the credit for the vision should go to the minister who was a gentleman called ian duncan smith and he'd done lots of pre-work on this before coming back into government with his own think tank, which was called the Centre for Social Justice. So when he arrived back in government, he'd got a really strong vision that was worked through for universal credit. And actually, I haven't seen many examples where ministers have come in with such strong practical views on what to change. And I think Robert and I, as practical people, could see that it made sense. And my job was to really solve all the process and technology Ian Duncan Smith, you're saying, understood what you were trying to do. And he was also part of the pushing the vision. Yeah, he created the vision, really, Siobhan. I mean, I know in the UK, we tend to assume that's the role of ministers, that ministers come in with these grand ideas. And, but Ian actually did. He came and landed in government, having done a lot of work on universal credit, and knew exactly how he, he wanted it to play out as a policy. And then, you know, Rob and I's job was to translate that into the reality of an operation, what does it mean for people, processes, what technologies do we want? Yeah. And would you say that, going back again to your seven lenses, so you talked about transformational leadership, do you think the Universal Credit Project would have scored highly on all of the seven lenses? Is that what it needed to do to be as successful as it was? It, you know, we have a maturity matrix on the seven lenses, which goes from one to five. I would say UC would have scored three, four, three and four on everything. Five's almost ideal never get too ideal. But yeah, UC was thought through, back to front, well planned, well implemented, great vision. So I, I know your time in the UK government was hugely successful, Kevin, and <laughs> largely down to your great leadership. But were there any examples of things that didn't go mm. quite as well? And what did you learn from those? And why weren't they as successful? Yeah, famously, I, had, I have had to appear in front of a public <laughs> committee explaining uh, why some things didn't go quite to plan. Uh, I guess the one that we'd all recognise is the UK's digital identity system. So as we said in episode one, we are way behind the curve. Uh, we thought it through in time. But in truth, I think we were way too ambitious in trying to implement digital identity in the way that we did, because we set out to create it in the private sector, not just for government, but for the private sector and for government. And, and in the end, it was just too ambitious. But we certainly made a, a few mistakes on the journey. Uh, the two I particularly remember are, we'd assumed that people like they do in Denmark would log in to government services using their bank account. And that proved to be mostly true except when it came to accessing your health records. So about a third of the country, third of the UK citizens, cannot be convinced to log in and look at their medical records using their bank account, because no matter how often we tell them, they believe their bank somehow got you know, the deeds of their medical accounts. So 
One is we didn't do our homework well enough on that particular area. Although, you know, it isn't such a sensitivity in other countries. So uh, the other big mistake I think we made was around marketing the service. We had lots of money in government for developing the service, but no money for marketing it. And it almost became kind of the best held secret in government. Now, our own digital identity program was one of the best secrets we'd got. I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever heard of it. Yeah, and and those mistakes were made really early on, and unfortunately, you know what it's like in government when the momentum's against you. It's quite hard to convince the organisation to accept that and turn and come with you. So, building on that, then, in terms of kind of lessons learnt. What would your tips be for governments around the world, again, not just here in the UK, but for other governments, other civil servants thinking about this? How can you get from that, having a great vision to actual implementation? What are the key things that you've learned from your own experiences and also from that study that you did of other countries? Well, I mean, there is, it is at one level as simple as read the seven lenses and compare, you know, where you are to whether you could classify yourself as a three and four in all those areas. So, if you've got a vision, do you really have a design and plan? Do you know who's doing what? Who's accountable? Are you relying too much on collaboration or otherwise? And do you have the right people, both at the top that can do what Robert did and do stuff that the digital transformation directors can't do? And two, do you have the engineering capability uh, to do so? And I, I did some work recently in an arm's length body for the UK. And they were being advised by a consultancy who kept talking about the benefits of AI to you know their business model. And we haven't got anybody in government that can program an AI, and we haven't got anybody that can manage AI. So, so having that level of ambition again, again, I can imagine people listening to this saying it's all very well having this great study with all these lessons learned, having the seven lenses, but I have no money. Funding's really tight, tighter than ever, coming out of COVID, war in Ukraine, budgets are really restricted. Is there a reality check in terms of, do people have to lower their ambitions for transformation because they just don't have the funding to do these things? Yeah, I think there would be. I'd say, you know, we talked last time about the £2 billion funding of UC, but actually it paid back £8 billion a year. So if you can afford to do it, Obviously, there's a business case there. I think what I see, particularly in our new study on the Caribbean, a lot of Caribbean islands have access to a lot of money from development banks or UN development programs to fund it. So, so I don't think funding's so much of an issue. I think the big mistake almost universally everybody still makes is they underinvest in their people. And, and I always say to people, you'll never be in trouble for overinvesting in your people. And it's people that make the change, not the technology. And that's the bulk of the cost a lot of the time. And so I think, you know, my main lesson to everybody would be just invest in your people, try and build a capability. As we talked about last time, you can't build it over a year. You have to build it over a decade. But you need to keep making that investment in people so that as technology, processes, everything else improves, you'll be up there taking advantage of that. So, I mean, that's a really nice way into what I wanted to end on, really, which is people. And you mentioned the need for senior staff to be more involved, to be championing digital transformation, but also that we don't have maybe the skills, the digital skills that we need, that they're sitting in the private sector. And then there's the 
do civil servants who are already in the civil service understand what real transformation is? There's so many aspects to the people side of transformation. When you say investing in people, where do you think that investment needs to be? Well, in, in, in all the places and one beyond it. So you've absolutely got to relentlessly train your perm sex in understanding what their role is in leading some parts of the transformation. You've got to do what we do today and where we have the major projects, Leadership Academy, and train lots of senior managers in what good project management looks like. You've absolutely got to continue training people in digital academies so they understand the different processes. But, but I think fundamentally, one of the things we still don't have right is the civil service doesn't recruit graduates who are creative. They tend to recruit people that will follow what pre-exists. And, and I'd have to say this, as an outsider coming in, I felt, when we talked about this last time, really quite strange, quite mad, really, compared to the normality of the civil service. And the civil service just doesn't seem to welcome, engender those kind of left-handed, crazy people that think laterally about things and are constantly inquisitive and keep saying, well, why do you do it like that? I remember when I was in the civil service and we had an away day with permanent secretaries and one of the permanent secretaries was talking about when they came into the civil service and how they thought it was really strange and people were expected to do things in a certain way. And he said for the first six months, he kept saying, there are different ways that you can do this. And then he realized after he'd been there about a year that he'd kind of gone native. Yeah. And he was starting to do things in the same way. And he said, actually, what you should teach all kind of people coming into the civil service is don't lose that difference when you come in. And I think we have a long way to go in that in the civil service. Yeah, yeah, I do. And we talked last time about me giving my team time off to create a video. I, you know, that wasn't my idea. That had been foisted upon me a couple of times in my past employment. But it goes to show how different they were as employers to the civil service, which is much more conservative. And I, I do think the, the biggest challenge to transformation, for UK government at least, is allowing the creative people to remain creative so they do see things differently to the way it's been done before. And they're able to express that. And I can't really end, because you mentioned it, actually. I wasn't going to bring up AI, but you did touch on this. And do you think the future of transformation will inevitably have AI at its heart? And is that something that the civil service isn't even thinking about enough at the moment? Do we need to recruit people who do have the programming skills yeah, I think we do. I think yes and no, if that's okay. I think we do need to create people who have AI backgrounds because if we don't understand it, we can't manage it. So we won't take advantage of it. But at the end of the day, AI is really just a branch of computer science and happens to be rather more glamorous than some of the others. But digitization is just a branch of computer science as well. So I don't think AI will be at the center of it. But like digitization, you know, modernization, which we talked about last time, iPads, video conferencing, they will all change the way the civil service works. And for sure, AI will be part of that broad picture. But in my opinion, not necessarily the dominant one in our lifetimes. Thanks, Kevin. It's been great to really hear more about your personal experience. Fantastic to have that insight into the seven lenses and how helpful that can be. And just to get a sense of not just the why digital transformation is so important, but the how uh, we achieved that learning from some things that went well and some things that didn't go quite so well. Mm. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 